Ambrick, and uh, I'm the pastor here at Vintage, and we are glad that you are here. As, uh, this is an extension of our time of worship this morning, and I ask that you would take, take those baskets that you passed down earlier. This is our time where we give our offerings, and uh, what we said is this, you know, and I, we said this at the first service, and so uh, I felt like I'll, I'll say it here, that, you know, uh, a word was given about just being a people who are... Um, are faithful in, in, what's the word, basically of giving, just giving of yourself, giving of your time, and uh, just being, uh, being faithful to give. And I, and I said the first service, and I'll say it here, that, you know, God, and here, I hear this clearly, God cares more about what you give the other six days of the week than what you give here. I mean, obviously, he wants you to be faithful and your obedience and tithes and offerings, all that kind of stuff. You grew up in church and in that language. But what God really cares about is what are you giving the other six days of your week? Because what God is looking for is a, is a people who are generous, that you see people every day who are in need, that you see people every day who, uh, who need blessing in their life, whatever it may be. And God looks at you and says, what I'm looking for is people who really embrace the Acts 242 through 247 model, that when you see those that are in need, that you are willing to give. And I said the first service, and again, I'll just say it here, that that we should never pray for someone about something if we're not first willing to be the answer to that prayer. If someone comes to you and says, hey, please pray for me about this, and they're in death financial need or whatever it may be, the first question you ask is not how should I pray, but God, how should I give? And if God says, I'm just calling you to pray, then you feel comfortable to be obedient to pray. But your first response is, God, what do, out of my surplus, what do I need to give to those that are in need? If you want to see a community change, if you want to see lives changed around you, if you want to see your neighbors come to Christ and people who are far from him come near to him, then you ask how in your surplus that you can give and be a blessing and be the answer so you don't have to pray. You just say, well, actually, let me just answer that for you. That's what I feel like the word of God is for us in the season that we're living in, in this culture in which we're living. Be Jesus by giving your life away, not by praying for someone. God sometimes says to you, please, please, please stop praying and just go be the answer. That's the word I feel like God was given in the first service. And so if I need to be faithful here to give that same word. And um, so whatever that lands with you this week. Doesn't mean I'm giving you a, you know, a, a card to stop praying. Say, well, Steve told me to stop praying. Right now, I didn't say that. What I said is, you can stop praying if God calls you to be the answer. And beyond that, yes, continue to pray and ask God to move. All right. Um, so, pass our, take our baskets and pass them down. Um, if you fill out a connect card, if you have the time to put that in there, I'll shoot you an email this week and say thanks for being here. And it'll be good. All right. Uh, Randall just briefly mentioned about the vintage released. Uh, basically, it's this. We uh, came together and said, you know, we want to do something midweek that really takes our, quote unquote, takes our people deeper, takes them to new levels. And 
And so we're doing vintage release. If you are from Face Down World, which is our kind of our house, our, home, our, our church that launched us, they have a thing called Face Down. We're not doing Face Down. So if that's you and you think, oh, it's going to be like Face Down. It's not like Face Down. It's completely different. But it's a time where we want to take our leaders. We want to invest into them. We want to the, – the primary component of it, be there every week, is, is prayer. But like God's just calling us to pray, to intercede, to contend, all these words. Basically coming and praying and praying well. And so we're going to do some of that. We're going to take some other stuff and just kind of take you deeper, talk about our calling and our purposes for being here and all that kind of jazz. And so we're not going to give some big, massive sales spiel. I'm basically putting it out there saying, hey, we want you to come. You feel God wooing you to that time of, of going deeper, of knowing him better, of, of, of really kind of, I would say, part of it for me is stepping out of our religious box and actually getting the true spiritual knowledge of Jesus and a true relationship with him. Then we're going to invite you Wednesday, 7 o'clock. We do not have child care. It's just too much for us to put together at this time. Uh, but what I would say is this. If you feel God calling you to serve by owning child care on a Wednesday night, saying, I feel God's calling me to do that for the next five or six weeks, then you let us know, and uh, we will make sure that you can, you can make that happen. That's going to be your area of service at Vintage. We'd be greatly appreciated. All right. Well, hey, today is Father's Day. It's all a day all about us, guys. Woo-hoo, right? I love days like this. I love days that are all about me, right? I love waking up in the morning and, and, and I can live in expectation of everyone being nice to me today, right? I can live in expectation of saying, well, listen, it's Father's Day, so you need to, right? I love that, right? I love days like this. It's like my birthday, kind of love my birthday, right? I just make it all about me. It's a day to be selfish in the name of Jesus, and it's just so fantastic. Fantastic and stuff, you know. And no, seriously, I just I love I love Father's Day. So today's Father's Day. Now, you know, I have uh, lots of thoughts about uh, Father's Day, but one of the things that always comes back to me is in fa- being a father. It's like it's one of the most amazing things I've ever done in my life, right? That it's the greatest gift God's ever given me. It's opportunity to to be a father, and 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 in being a father, there's all sorts of emotions that that pop out towards your children that you realize you never really had before. And one of those moments was was Anna Catherine. She's sitting here on the front row, and she was about eight and a half, nine months old, and we were living in Omaha, Nebraska, and we were about to move to Orlando. And, and, and I was uh, cleaning up the basement, taking all the trash, and therefore Randall was responsible for caring for Anna Catherine. Now, in her mind, I was responsible for caring. We still kind of debate back and forth, okay? So I'll own it possibly as my responsibility. But in my mind, it was her responsibility to watch Anna Catherine. So I walk out the, the basement door, and I go out the, the back door, take the things to the trash can. All of a sudden, I hear a scream from Randall. And my fur, and she's looking. I look up, and she's looking down the base, toward looking down the stairs of the basement, right? And you need to know this house was built in 1928. Stairs were an afterthought, right? I mean, the stairs were like this wide and like this steep, right? I mean, it was like you slid down the stairs. You didn't walk down them, right? And in those stairs, they were built. They were so old. Had like a pole up here that was holding it in place, one little spindly pole right in the middle, kind of keeping it in place, and then one at the very bottom. It was completely, completely a terrible design, right? And so I look up, and my first thought is Anna Catherine has gone tumbling down the stairs, and she's dead. That was my first thought. And so literally, in like one leap, I jump the stairs. I get there to look down to see my child, thinking she's died. And 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 all of a sudden, this is what I see. Let's say this is that spindly little arm. I see an arm, her little arm, like this, around it, and her face going, ah, like this, ah, right? I'm thinking, I'll see, ah, 
ah, right? That was her face. And I'm like, ah, and I, Randall and I both lunged down and she's just, she's crying. She's completely healthy, right? She's, she like literally is like, God just, she slid on her belly 15 steps, right? All the way down, somehow made it to the right, because she's like, she's just little, right? Made it to the right and her arm just happened by chance to catch on this little bitty bracket, right? And I'll never forget, like, I, like Randall gets there first, right? It was unfair. I wanted to get there first and be dad, right? It was not a fair moment for me, right? But anyway, Randall grabs her, and I come walking up the stairs, and I have this flood of emotion. Like, this flood I've never felt before. And my first, like, I, like, I don't know what to do, so I was like, ah! and I punched the wall, right? It was like, only, I mean, you understand that. It's like, I've got this emotion. I've never had it before. I don't know what to do with this. So I'm going to just punch the wall, right? My hand hurt, right? Really, really bad. But I just punched the wall. I'm like, ah! I had this emotion. Because there was this love and affection and this thing that I had for her that I had never ever felt before in my entire life. And the same goes true for Sarah, both my Anna Catherine and Sarah, who are now nine and eight years old. I mean, there's just this affection, this affinity that I have for them. I would almost call it a peculiar love because it just happened overnight. I found out Randall was pregnant and something became alive in my heart like I had never known, right? I'm like, Oh, right. And she was born. I sat there and said, she's the most beautiful thing ever. She's like covered in slime and gook and stuff. Right. You know, I'm like, oh, she's all, you know, just I was undone in my heart with emotion for her because I loved her. It's a peculiar love. And what I would ultimately say is this, that in my life, I'm 100 percent for my daughters. In everything, right? I want the best for them. I said it first, so I'll say it here. Like, I, when my children compete with your children, I want them to beat your children, right? I want them to win, right? Because I want the best for them. I want them to be number one. I want them to be on top. I want them to have everything, right? Because I love them. Ultimately, I would say, and I say this with humility, I believe that I'm a good father. I believe most of you in this room, you are good fathers. You want the best for your children. You love your children, right? You, and you, just, you want the best. You are a good father. Because we love our children. But it's interesting. <clears throat> it's interesting that according to Jesus, I and every single one of us in this room, our goodness as fathers pales in comparison in a major way to the goodness of Father God. In chapter uh, 7 of Matthew, Jesus is coming and he's speaking to this group and it specifically kind of calls out this group of men. And he says this, he says, Which of you, if his son, will throw him daughter here, if his son or daughter asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is coming in this moment and doing those comparison contrast things, right? He's coming in those comparison contrast things. Listen, he says, yeah, every single one of you, you're good. You're good parents, right? Every, you're, you're good. If your child asks for this, you're not going to get them the exact opposite, right? You're not going to get them something that's dangerous to them. Instead, you're going to bless them. But let me say this. You, even though you are good as a parent... In comparison, in comparison, you compared to God, it's as if you were evil. 
That is how great God is. Jesus, in the moment, he's not speaking of the nature of the men who are standing there. He's simply speaking to the nature of the goodness and the greatness of God. If you're, you know, if your child comes to you or your cousin comes to you or your neighbor comes to you and says, hey, listen, I've got this 10-foot slip and slide in my front yard, and it is awesome, right? In your mind, you're saying, well, that may be awesome, but let me tell you about whitewater. Right. In comparison to whitewater, we don't know it's a big water park in Merritt, right? You've got whitewater. I'll never forget when I was a kid. I mean, you had whitewater. I mean, back in the I haven't been there literally since I was probably like, I don't know, 13 or 14, 15 years old. But I remember the ride of the day was the dragon tail. Right? It was just really, really long. It was like, it's the largest slide in the southeast. Something like that. Whatever those things they make up to sell it to you, right? But anyway, false advertising consume. Anyway, so this whole the dynamic going like the dragon tail, it's awesome, right? You got this, it's like awesome. And so, so you have all of this stuff going at Whitewater compared to the 10-foot slip and slide. This is awful compared to the greatness of whitewater. Now, in reality, your little cousin, your little, your son, daughter, yes, it's a great water slide. Ten foot slip and slide. Woo, right? It's ride. Woo, okay, we're done. Thanks. Right? Or, or dragon sail. Whoa! You know, this lasts forever. You the whole dynamic going down. It's a comparison contrast. In comparison to God, you're a ten foot slip and slide. <laughs> At best. Compared to whitewater. Who is God? Jesus is coming in the moment, and he's doing this. He's doing this comparison contrast to begin to name and express the goodness of Father God. He's coming and naming the greatness of the Father that he knows. So the best that we can be is a ten-foot slip and slide compared to the greatness of Jesus. And, and, and the, the point that I wanted to make is this. And it's the question we have to begin with and the question that I believe that every single one of us must wrestle with is, do you believe it? Do you actually believe that God is good? Do you believe he's good? Do you live in the comfort that Father God is actually good? And the way that he responds to you and the way that he, he relates to you and the things that he, quote unquote, does for you or does with you. Do you believe that he is actually good? Let alone, do you actually believe he's great? And so it's one of those things that you may believe he's good, but do you actually believe he's good to you? Because it's really easy to think that God is good for someone else. How often do we struggle with believing that God is actually good in relationship to us? That he is a loving father, a caring father, a protective father, a father who has our best interest in mind in everything that's going on in life. Do you actually believe that he is good to you? You see, I would say that you can't confidently come to someone with needs or requests, whatever I mean, you can't come to someone confidently that you don't believe is good. Do you hear that? You can't confidently come to someone with expectation unless you believe that they are good. You can't ask for help if you don't think they actually have your best interest at heart and want to invest into you, you can't lean on someone if you don't believe that they will stand there and let you lean on them. You can't lean on someone unless you believe that they will actually care for 
and fight for you. How many of you have relationships with people that you don't trust them ultimately? Even in your, in your relationship with your parents, that you don't ultimately trust them because you're not, you think they're going to hurt you or wound you or do something that's going to be biting or hurting or cutting. It's like, oh, it's like you put your defenses up whenever you are around them. You don't believe that they're, they're good. And we wrestle in our own life. Again, believing. Do we actually believe that God is good? Now, Scripture, the testimony of Scripture again and again is that God is good. We see Psalm 34, we sang this morning, it says, Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Good and upright, right? He is an upstanding, up, upright with character, right? In integrity, he is upright. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He loves them enough to come alongside him as a, as a caring God, right? Psalm 107 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. It has no end, right? Psalm 31 19, How great is your goodness. How great is your goodness, God, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. Or John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus stating, he says, I am the good shepherd. That's who I am. I will go ahead and define it. I am the good shepherd on a godly level. In a sense, we could say that, that Jesus, Jesus is the whitewater, whitewater version of good, right? Compared to our slip and slide level of good. I am the good shepherd. You know what a shepherd does? It's a parental thing. Cares for, protects, fights for all of these things, right? I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again and again and again, Scripture has the testimony of God that He is good, that His ways are good, His decisions are good, His his purposes in life and His purposes for our lives, that they are always good. But the question you have to honest, listen, please be honest. Do you actually believe that? Do you live every moment of every day believing that God is actually whitewater good in the way that he relates to you in the context of your life? Do you, are you, do you completely trust him when you come to pray, believing that he hears you and that he will answer? Do you come confidently into his presence, or do you kind of come with your defenses up? Do we believe that he is good? My thought is this, and I want to share with you something I was processing even this past Wednesday. I said, that just like a child, often in our lives, we tend to define God's goodness by the things that make us happy rather than by the things that please God. I'll say that again. Often in our lives, we tend to define God's goodness by the things that make us happy rather than by the things that please God. When we don't receive what we want or the things that we think we deserve, to serve, we, we tend to get angry. We tend to get frustrated, upset. And then it's that moment we can say, God really a good God. Because we have defined for, we've defined for God and ourselves what is best in our lives. We've defined what's best. We've defined what's good. And when that doesn't happen, we begin to question God. We begin to question 
His goodness? Is He really for us, right? When something, you've experienced it, when something negative happened or something opposed to what we think is best for our lives happens, what do we do? We kind of start reeling and saying, is God really God? Is He really for us? Is He really good? And we wrestle. What I want to do this morning is I want to, to look at a story from the book of Psalms in which we see a transition of one man's understanding of God's goodness to the true meaning of God's goodness. If your Bible turns to chapter 73 of Psalms, it's the story of Asaph. We've looked at him before, actually, last July, A-S-A-P-H, Asaph, chapter 73 of Psalms. And if you remember, we said that, that, Psalm, that Asaph is, um, Asaph is, he was, he lived from 1020 to 920 BC. He served as the music director, both under David and under Solomon. In fact, David actually made him the chief priest who was over the Ark of the Covenant. Basically meaning, David said, listen, the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Covenant represents pre- the presence of God with us. So I'm putting you in charge of cultivating and taking care of the presence of God in our midst. Could you imagine if that was your job? I look at you and say, hey, listen, I want you to be in charge of God's presence being here on Sunday mornings at Vintage. Wow, what a weight in a sense that you would feel and that you would carry, right? And that's, that's his job. You're, you were caring for the Ark of the Covenant representing the presence of God with us. One of his primary jobs was that David would write these psalms in his time with the Lord and say, Asaph, I don't have time to put music to them, so could you do that, right? And so this morning we sang, Oh, Taste and See. So you can see Asaph, Oh, Taste and See, Woo, that the Lord who is good to you, right? Whatever. He's writing that. That's that guy. He's that guy putting music to the words, right? That's his job. His morning he's saying, yeah, that was my job. I put the music to that, right? Whatever it may be. That's what he does. And that's Asaph. So basically I'm getting at is if anybody should know the presence of God, if anyone should know the, the goodness of God, if anyone's even teaching the goodness of God, it should be Asaph. He's the one man. He's on the pinnacle up here. He's preaching. He knows it. He is relating to the king. He's writing music to all these good words that David is writing. It's a really, really good time to be Asaph, right? Or is it? I'm going to read the whole, turn to 73, chapter of Psalms. I'm going to read the entire chapter. And as I read it, I want you to put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in his shoes. It says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he makes this statement, hey, God is good. But he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my, my heart pure. In vain 
have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Things are not going well for Asaph, if you can't tell. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. Basically what he's saying is, I can't even get up and preach because I'm at such tension with the goodness of God. I don't even know what to say. I, I would betray myself and betray the people. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive. It was weighty to me till until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I mean, could you, can you get the language? I mean, he was just not nice. He was a jerk. He was undone. He couldn't even process his own thoughts. He, he went Lieutenant Dan all over God. You've seen Forrest Gump, right? He's up on the thing. with Forrest Gump is my own thing. All right. He's just frustrated and angry. I was senseless and ignorant, yet I, am, yet, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire, desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to hear God. I have made I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all of your deeds. Asaph begins with a statement that is true about God, right? That God is good, but it's the very statement that he's wrestling with. Is God really good? He goes, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. He is wrestling. He is struggling with the goodness of God. He's wondering all these things. He's saying, why do good things happen for the wicked? The wicked are simply those who aren't being obedient to God or doing whatever they want to do, right? They're drinking as much as they want to, right? They're taking advantage of many people as they want to, right? They're living the life that they want to. They may be naming God over here in one thing going to church on Sunday, they're living like hell the rest of the week and they're completely fine with it. And he's saying, look at them, they're prospering. And here I am and I'm struggling. This is not fair, right? He's struggling in this moment. His feet had almost slipped. He is straying, literally. He sees himself just falling away from God, falling away from the, from the things of God. Saying, I'm not even sure I want to be a Christian, a follower. I can't be the chief priest anymore. I can't even speak anymore because I'm in such tension. I feel like I'm right here in this moment of tension and I don't know how to live. I'm living this moment questioning, is God really good? Because if he is, how could these bad things be happening to me and these good things happening to the wicked? He's living in tension, struggling. The issues at hand as I see them here, let's name these three, there's probably more. Number one, Asaph wished he could be in the shoes of the wicked. Asaph wished that he could be in the shoes of the wicked. Have you ever been there before? It says here, look at it, it says in verse, verse 3, it says, Where I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no struggles and are free from burdens that everyone faces and on down the line of things that he names. Have you ever been there saying, God, it's just so hard to be a Christian? 
It's just so hard to be a follower of Jesus. I have to live by this, this level of morality. I can't do all of these things over here, and I'm not having as much fun as these people over here, and I have to do all of these things. God, it's just not fair, right? And living in this tension, and in this moment, what you see is Asaph, he does not, he didn't hate their sin, but instead he envied their possessions, and he ultimately envied their success. I would say that 99.9.9999% of all Christians and all followers of Jesus sometime in their life have struggled with their tension, saying it's just so hard to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. I would say it's actually what Randall calls Southern Christianity. That 99.99% of your neighbors probably would call themselves a Christians and then live like hell the rest of the week. Saying, I'll take Jesus for his blessings, but I don't want him for the commitment and obedience. Those people are going straight to hell. Because they are actually are not in relationship with God because relationship is all about commitment of following him every day of their life in obedience to him. People who ride the fence, unless there's some supernatural work, they will fall off onto the wrong side. And we in, in Asaph is at this moment saying there's just this tension and I'm living in it. The second thing we see him struggling with is he lived in a level of self-righteousness. A level of self-righteousness. And in verse 13, he says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Basically saying, listen, do you see how great I am? Do you see all the things that I've done for you, God? Do you see that I wash myself ceremonially every day, right? I'm praying three times a day, facing towards Jerusalem, right? Every day I come in here, and every day I'm reading the scrolls again and again. I'm quoting them from memory, right? He had the whole... He had, he had Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized, right? All chief priests, he had memorized. He was just quoting it back and forth to himself every day, just repeating all of these things every day. Right? He's probably fasting with the best of them. I'm going to fast for 40 days the last, last month and this month. I mean, I'm a, I mean, I'm as good as good gets. Look, at I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing, all the things that I'm told if I do, I'll get blessings from. And look at me, I'm being a perfect Christian, a perfect follower of God, and I'm getting nothing. And they're over there being wicked and all this stuff. Nothing good is happening. All the good stuff's happening to them. That's not fair. All of us do that too. And if we're, and, and if we don't, and if we have guts, we'll actually verbalize it. Most of the time we just internalize it. And because if we, we know we shouldn't say that, but in reality we always are. Well, I'm being a good Christian, and I'm not getting anything. I just lost my job. And look at that. Way to go, God. Love you. Right? Whatever it may be. Third thing we see, Asaph struggling. He seems to be wrestling with self-pity. He seems to be wrestling with self-pity. He says at verse 14, all day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Can you just hear that whiny voice coming out in that? He seems to say, I mean, I'm, I'm such a good guy. Right? And he's like, oh, woe is me. Do you know people like that? Whenever you're around them, all they can do is talk about negative things and the things they're frustrated with. It's usually all about how it relates to them. You know, like that in the church, that worship is always too loud. My preaching is always way too long, right? Someone, just wasn't, someone didn't talk to them talking this morning, right? Well, so-and-so didn't talk to them this morning, so I'm probably not going back to that church. Seriously, get over yourself. I can't stand people like that. I mean, they just need to go somewhere else. 
If you're going to get your feelings hurt because someone doesn't talk to you, then stop coming to church and sit with God in your own house by yourself all day long. Get out of your self-pity. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it in myself. I hate self-pity in myself. I rebuke myself all the time. Shut up, Steve. Stop looking at yourself all day long and seeing how mean everyone's being to you, right? You be nice to people. Whether they deserve it or not, just love on them. Asaph is in this moment. Because you know when you're living in self-pity, you know what happens? You can't see anyone but yourself. And ultimately, you look at yourself, you don't like yourself. Because all you can see is your own junk. And you portray that on somebody else as if it's their fault. Guess whose fault it is? Yours! And Asaph is realizing that. In his self-pity, he's blinded to the purposes of God and to God himself. And all he can see is his own junk. He's struggling in the moment. Listen, God is our Father. God is good. But do you know it? Asaph, is, he had been told all of his life that God was good. He had written psalms about it. Remember, he wrote the music to taste and see that God is good. He knew it. He had preached it. He had spoken it. He had counseled people with it. And here he is wrestling in the moment immensely with this truth in Psalm 73. Just as every single one of us in this room struggles with the goodness of God. And the turning point for Asaph, the climax of his tension is verse 16 and 17. He says, listen, all of this stuff in the first 15 verses, all of this, when I tried to understand it, was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Then I understood from God. Then I had my awakening moment. I had this moment of revelation of who God is and who I am compared to Him. The first lesson that we see him learn is this. He perceived their end. Verse 17, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary and then I understood their final destiny. He perceived the end. The first lesson that he learned was this. You have, listen, this is important. Every single human being does this. You have to stop viewing life in the temporal sense of your 70 to 90 years on earth. And Asaph all of a sudden looked and he goes, oh, I just realized the eternal perspective. I've been blinded by my temporal understanding of the life that I'm living right here and now on the earth. But God awakened me because he is white water and I'm slip and slide. He's so much bigger and greater than me. I just didn't understand it. Now I saw just a, just a, a taste, a taste, a taste of his greatness. And I realize now I'm not living a temporal lifetime. I'm living an eternal one. And so that even though, even though hell might happen in the 70 years, let me tell you, for eternity, I will live in greatness and they will find their ruin because God must always judge sin and unrighteousness. God must always come and pour out judgment on those who are opposed to him. And saying, he's saying, listen, the wicked are over here. And all of a sudden I realize that God will convict them. God will judge them. And that my reward, yes, I may get a, a slight blessing here on earth, but ultimately my reward is heaven. Because the reality, listen, you will only live a short period of time here on earth 
and you will spend the next trillion, zillion to infinity years in heaven with him. It's too much for your little minds and my little mind to get around because we love slip and slides. But the greatness and the reality of eternity is that we have this perspective that life is eternal in nature. And we'll begin to get a picture that we begin to see, God, who cares what happens on this earth because I will receive blessing for eternity. The thing you need to recognize about our staff is simply this. Nothing, listen, nothing got better in his life. Nothing got better. He came under the rulership of, of, of Solomon, and Solomon took about 100,000 wives, and he couldn't lead. And so he literally, because of his sin, the kingdom was split, and everything they had hoped would never happen, happened. And then Asaph died. He went from loving Solomon to living in tension with him because Solomon ruined everything. He perceived their end, and he lived in that Muslim. But God, I see with the eternal perspective, big picture. Thank you, Lord. Now, the second thing, he had a new definition of good. He had a new definition of good. In verse 1, good really meant the absence of pain, the absence of difficulty, the absence of trouble, the absence of sorrow, the absence of sickness, and the absence of poverty. It's usually how we define good. God is good because he did this, he did this good thing for us, something that we like, right? Something that we like. And God then becomes good because he keeps us from sickness and pain and poverty, etc. But Asaph realizes that this is not the case. Listen, God, he realizes God is good simply because he is. God is good simply because he is. I, I read a story one time with this, uh, this professor named uh, Dr. Pentecost, actually. You know that word, Dr. Pentecost, a great seminary professor name, right? And he's sitting there one day and he comes to his class and says, hey, listen, I am about to go with my wife into the doctor. Uh, we're having some tests done. We think she may have cancer. Would you please pray for us? And so everyone comes around and begin to pray. And so he goes the next day, gets a test run. They come back and praise God she doesn't have cancer. Everybody's like, yes, this is great. All these people came up to him and say, oh, my gosh, look at the goodness of God and how he kept you from cancer. Oh, look how good God is. He gave you a clean bill of health. And he walked into the classroom and kind of with this look, and he said, listen, yes. God is good. But I have to say to you that even if the doctor's report had been that my wife did still, did actually did have cancer, God would have still been good. God would have still been good. He would have been great. He's still been worthy of praise. For God, God is, He's good. That's the thing He came to, right? He comes in, in, in verse 28 and says, But as for me, it is good. To be near God. His goodness now becomes defined by the reality, not of what God does for him, but what just simply being near to God. We sang that a second ago from Psalm 27. It says, that, This one thing I ask, and this shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon his beauty and meditate on his goodness. David said, There's only one thing that's ultimately good, and it's being near to God. This is what Asaph realizes. He has this aha, this revelation. God is good because, well, he just simply is. Why is this important for us this morning? Why am I spending so much time talking about God's goodness? 
Because the goodness of God is a summation of every single one of his other attributes. His omniscience and his omnipotence and his faithfulness and his kindness and his gentleness. All of these things are simply a summation of his goodness. And if we don't believe in his goodness, and if we don't know this goodness, then when we come to pray, there's a wall up because we come with our defenses up and we want to give him a way out because we don't want to be offended by him again for not doing what he think we think he should be doing. What we define as good. And if we're going to be people who see God move here and watch God move in our community, then we have to get past all this stuff and say, God, I need a revelation. God, I need to know your goodness. I can't contend in prayer. It's what Tammy talked about. She was here two weeks ago. She said, listen, we know how to pray because we know God is good even when a bad report comes. Whether sickness comes or or health, whether pain comes or prosperity, we will say, God, you are good. And it will define how we come to you in prayer. It will define our trust for you. And we will just say, even when we're going through hell, God, you are good. God, you are good. How does this land? How do you like that? I think as human beings, we definitely struggle with this. And so here's what I want to say to you this morning. Number one. We need our own revelation. It's not enough for me to sit here and tell you God is good. It's not enough for you to tell somebody else that God is good. There has to be an awakening moment in your own life where you recognize and have revelation that God, in an eternal perspective, that God is good. No matter what happens in my life, and even if I die an early death, I will still say God is good. My circumstances, listen, circumstances must stop defining God's goodness for us. He is good because he is. And you need to have a revelation moment that he is. I can't tell you you have to believe it. Asaph, he bucked against God until he entered God's sanctuary. Then he woke up from self-pity and self-centeredness to God's goodness. Some of us, we have to get outside of our self-righteousness. We have to get outside of of our self-pity and go into the sanctuary of God and have an honest conversation with him. Some of you need to go have a Lieutenant Dan moment. Tall, go to the mast in the middle of your hurricane and just start screaming. Rent the apostle and watch Robert Duvall do it well. Remember that movie says, sometimes he speaks to God, and well, sometimes he just screams at God. But he always comes down in love with him, basically. God's already aware of the tension inside of your mind. Why don't you be honest with it? Second thing is we need to care enough to give ourselves to the pursuit of God's goodness. We need to care enough to give ourselves to the pursuit of God's goodness. One of the great tensions I see in becoming a people who see the movement of God in our midst, our midst in a full and complete way, is for us to have a full and complete trust in the goodness of God. If we want to see God move the way, if we want to pray with confidence, if we want to pray with trust, then we have to wrestle with the goodness of God. We have to. It's what Asaph is doing here. If you don't believe in trusting, he says, I was a brute beast before him. Don't lose the language. He is beating his chest and screaming. I don't know what it looked like. I, didn't want to, I don't want to be there. 
because it would not have been a pretty moment. The chief priest is wrestling with God. Third thing, the in place we must land, much like a staff is this. We must land the place that God is good, not because of what he does, but simply because of who he is. Listen, my girls, my girls, they rest in the goodness of their dad. They know ultimately that I am for them. They know that I, in my best ability, that I will protect for them. They know that I will fight for them. They know that I will love them. That when they come to me, they trust that I will love them and care for them. I will, I will give them what they need for their life. They come and they, they lean on me and they, they, they trust me and they, they respect me and they honor me and they, they want to be with me, right? It's a part of their life. And my simple question on Father's Day is, do you know your spiritual father that way? Because let me tell you confidently, it grieves the heart of Father God when he sees that we don't know him that way. Not grieve as in angry, but grieve in the sense of longing and desire. Oh, I want you to know that I'm good. That's what the psalmist says, just taste. Oh, just taste and see. I know you don't know it, but just taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, we thank you for this morning. Father, we thank you for a Father's Day. Father, we thank you that that you are a loving Father and that you are a faithful Father. Father, we praise you that you are good and in your goodness that you are great. We praise you, Father, that you are a white water. You're not a ten-foot slip and slide. Father, we praise you that, that you are eternal, and when you see our lives, you don't see the earth. You see eternity, because you live at the end of time and at the beginning of our lives and before our lives all at the same time. And so when you think about your goodness and pouring out blessings, God, you're not bound by our earth. You are simply bound by your own bounds of eternity. And Father, I pray and ask this morning, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you awaken us? Would you awaken us to an Asaph moment? Would you awaken us to this revelation moment? Father, I, I know your heart. I know that you want us to know your goodness. And we ask for help, Jesus, in that. Pray this in your holy name.